Today we're wrapping up our 10-part series called The Space Between. And today we're going to talk about the space between sin and restoration. Uh, Sin is a word that doesn't get used a lot in popular culture anymore, but in scriptures, sin happens anytime when we step out of alignment with God's truth, with God's wisdom, and God's call for our lives. And today we're going to look at the story of somebody who stumbled in a lot of different ways, has a lot of different layers to this particular account of failure. And this passage is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to ask the ushers to go, go ahead and come forward with the scriptures. If you need a copy of the scriptures, just raise your hand up nice and high. We'd be happy to give you one. If you, brought, uh, if you look through those scriptures, we're going to look at page 310. Page 310. So the story, although we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, actually begins a chapter prior. Allow me to summarize. The backstory here is that David is the king of Israel approximately 3,000 years ago. He is the second ruler that that kingdom has ever had. And one year, David decides not to lead his men into battle. Apparently, springtime was the time when all kings went out to war. David's been to combat who knows how many times. He's tired. He thinks he's entitled to a break. He says, I'm going to sit this one out. So he sends Joab, a commander, and all of his loyal uh, warriors out to fight against a group of people called the Ammonites. Now, in short, David has abandoned his post to lead the people with vision and military capacity. And so David's first failure here is his failure to lead, his failure to fully embrace the call that God has on his life. And one night, he's walking the roof of his palace, and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing on her roof. Now, when I read this passage as a young person, I always had this question, what in the world is Bathsheba doing taking a bath out in the open? And here's what we have to understand. David's palace, if you ever get a chance to visit Jerusalem, you'll still see what archaeologists believe to be the ruins of the city of David. It's on a high hill. So David's palace would have been the highest point on the highest hill in the city. So he's got this kind of bird's eye view of the whole town that nobody else has. So you could argue that a woman who is bathing on her roof would rightly suppose that the king would not be as creepy enough to be looking at her. Now here's what else we need to understand. Where are all of the men between the ages of 20 and 60? Where are they right now? They're off to war. So Bathsheba has two things in her favor. One, she doesn't assume that the king would be a man of dishonor. And secondly, she believes that all of the men of military age are already gone. So the likelihood is that Bathsheba isn't the only woman in Jerusalem who is bathing on her roof. Why is she choosing the roof? She's not running water. The reality is they might might have captured rainwater to use to bathe in. So there are a couple things that may or may not be helpful to you as you kind of process this particular scenario. So David sends someone to find her. This is David's second mistake in the story. He lingers at the door of temptation. And he actually pulls the trigger when he sends a servant and says, go get that woman, bring her back. David sleeps with her. Make no mistake, Bathsheba, there's no indication in the text that Bathsheba is a willing party to this encounter. There are no men there to protect or defend her. And she is at the mercy of the king who has all of the power dynamics working in his favor. This is not a consensual affair. So the third mistake that David makes is he follows through on his fantasy. And Bathsheba conceives. She gets pregnant. Then David orders a massive cover-up. He has 
her husband, who we read in a later text, is one of his close personal friends. He's in his inner circle of combatants. And he actually tells his commander, Joab, he goes, hey, I don't want you to kill Uriah directly, but what I want you to do is I want you to put him into the most intense part of the battle. And when he's in trouble, I want everybody else to withdraw. I want you to have him lead a charge, and then I want you to leave him hanging so, so that he dies. It's not an active murder. It is a passive one. He kills an innocent person to cover his tracks. Then David marries Bathsheba, and later she gives birth to a son. And the passage, right before, the verse right before the passage we're about to lead, may be one of the greatest understatements in the Old Testament. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. It says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, you better believe it. It displeased all of us who hear it. We're like, wow, this guy has some issues. This is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared its food, it drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives to your arms. I give you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he would listen to us when we spoke to him. How now can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. 
David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground and after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. It's a heavy story with a lot of different nuances and facets and layers. But I believe that this story helps us answer this question What does everyone who is in the space between sin, a failure, and a restoration, healing, what do we need to know? And I want to argue that the three principles that we need to know, the three thoughts that we need to embrace is that every person in that space between sin and restoration, every person has a past. Every person needs a prophet. Every person gets a promise. It's the first step. Every person has a past. We have all had moments or seasons that we are not proud of. It could be a choice that you made 12 hours ago. It could be a choice that you made 12 years ago. We all have sordid chapters in our lives. Even good people, even church-going people, even people who got up early to be here on time people have kind of stories. I remember the Christian comedian Ken Davis said, isn't it ironic that... Those of us who have young children, the one moment of our week where we want to be most godly is when we're headed out to church, and the one moment of the week we're most likely to, likely to lose our ever-loving minds is when we're on our way out the door to church. Get your shoes on, get your coat on, get in the car so we can get to church and learn about the love of Jesus. <laughs> we, all, we all have our moments. And some of those are lust moments, and some of those are greed moments, and sometimes those are anger moments. We all have those moments. And in this encounter, God identifies David's moments. He identifies his crimes and his consequences. His crimes are clear. Abdication of leadership. Failure to lead his men. Adultery and murder. He says it in 2 Samuel 12, 9. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then he has consequences. God lists his crimes and then God gives his consequences. His consequences are unmistakable. Goes out of your household, I am going to be, bring calamity on you. David's failure here will have negative implications for his adult children. If you read one chapter forward, you'll see that David's adult son, Amnon, sexually assaults his half sister, Tamar, and David does nothing. And as a result, his other son, Absalom, loses total confidence in his father and eventually aspires to take over his kingdom. Now, why would David, as a father, fail to intervene in the sexual immorality of his own adult sons? Because everybody in his house knows what he's done. And in his mind, it's possible that he thinks that he's lost any moral authority to step into a nightmare of his family because of his own backstory. And there are immediate consequences as well. Verse 14 says, because by you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now, this is a brutal and problematic passage. Let me be clear. This is a specific consequence for a specific man in a specific season. 
Unfortunately, some people have used this exact passage of scripture to draw out larger theological principles that I would call not only unwise, but outright abusive. There are some people who will say, if you experience a tragedy, or God forbid, if you experience the loss of a child, it must be God's judgment for some past unconfessed sin. I don't think this is true. Life and scripture both teach us that evil people can thrive and righteous people can suffer. So please don't ever mistake tragedy in your life for punishment of sin. At the same time, we are not to confuse God's forgiveness with the absence of consequences. How many of you have a child that did something wrong, that they knew was wrong, and you said, I love you, you're my child, I embrace you, I forgive you, P.S., you're still grounded. Because mercy does not absolve us of consequences. Consequences or God's discipline are a way of shaping us, maturing us, chastening us, and molding us. It's because God loves us, and we'll find this in other passages throughout Scripture, that he disciplines us. Don't, forgive, don't confuse forgiveness with the absence of consequence. Our spiritual crimes against God when they are unchecked, will always lead to carnage in our lives and the lives of others. Everyone in that space between sin and restoration, we all, we all have to acknowledge at some point that we have a past. And then we all have to acknowledge that we need a prophet. Everyone in the space between sin and restoration needs a prophet. 2 Samuel 12, 1 says this, the Lord sent Nathan to David. God loves David so much he sends someone to tell him the harsh truth about what he has done when he's lost. And Nathan speaks the brutal truth to David about who he is and what he's done. He says in verses 7 and 9, David, you're, you are the man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave all of Israel and Judah to you. And I, here's the line that I love. If it had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in your eyes? And the short answer is this, and it's true for David, and it's true for every single one of us. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Why did you reject his wisdom and his truth in that moment or that season? And the answer is always, always, always this, because I got confused. I believe that every act of spiritual rebellion in our lives can be traced back to a wrong view of God. God said to David, I love you so much I provided for every single one of your needs and if at any point you were lacking, all you had to do was ask. We sing that song, good, good father. Where, where did David get lost? David forgot, not just for a moment, for a season, that God was a good father to him and that God wanted to provide for every single one of his needs. Somebody said the essence of sin is responding to a legitimate need through illegitimate means. So taking a soul hunger that's not wrong and feeding it with something that God has not provided. Anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. But when I take anger and don't surrender it to God for God's justice and God's healing and God's resolution, that turns into resentment, which turns into hatred, which can ultimately turn into physical or emotional violence. Every single one of us, we're born with this craving for intimacy. When we look to have those intimacy needs met outside of the context of a biblical marriage, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't think that you're providing for me. I'm going to have to do this on my own. 
What I love about this story is that God gave Nathan to bring David out of the fog of confusion back into the base of truth. Here's what I want to ask you right now. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have somebody who loves you enough to tell you the hard truth about where your life might be jumping the rails? Somebody who cares about you enough to grab you by the collar and say, hey, look, because I care about you, I need to let you know that this road that you are wandering down uh, is going to have devastating consequences. Do you have somebody who tells you, hey, like, you can stay on this track, but just so you know, the bridge is out, and there's going to be a crash if you're not careful. Do you have people in your life who will tell you you are drifting? Do you have people in your life who will tell you when your moral, moral compass wavers? I met with a new friend this week, and he said, I had somebody who had wounded me deeply, whose horrible choices had threatened to derail my career and decades of legacy that I had built. And an older mentor loved him enough to be able to say, your unchecked anger will destroy you. How can I help you wrestle it down? 12 years ago, I had a great friend by the name of Chris, and he'd been kind of walking his own journey with recovery. Because I noticed a very clear kind of shift and a very marked change in his demeanor. I said, Chris, you're less angsty. You're more gracious. You seem to have more joy. Your entire countenance is different. What's, what happened? He goes, I started going to recovery. He goes, hey, I want you to, I want you to read the, big, the AA big book. I want, you just, I want you to read these first 120 pages and see if it might have some questions for you. And I kind of I smiled at him in a very patronizing way. I said, oh, that's nice, Chris. I go, but I'm not addicted to anything. And then he asked me this question that I will never forget. He said, are you sure? His very gracious way of saying, Steve, like it or not, everybody has their own drug of choice. Everybody has their own kind of path that they walk to fill in the gaps in their lives and they don't trust God. What's yours? 12 years ago, that sent me on a journey of self-reflection that has been not easy. Sent me to kind of sift through some of the ashes of my past and say, why is my first instinct hostility in some situations? Why have I been dragging this backpack filled with the lead of resentment everywhere I go? Where'd that come from? And what do I need God to do in me to release that and let it go? There are two sets of people in this story who are complicit in David's failure. The first are Joab and the king's men. First of all, they never should have let David stay home. They should have said, David, your job is to lead. You're calling his leader, so let's lead. And then Joab had a choice. When, the, when David said, I want you to set Uriah up to die, Joab could have said, I'm not going to do that. If you, if you got a beef with Uriah, you need to take it up with him. But Joab, instead of playing the role of Nathan, just kinda, he kind of rolled over and said, well, David's my boss. I can't challenge him. I just got to do what he says. So both Joab and his commanders are complicit in David's failure. And then finally, we have this other group of people that we l- learn about when David is begging God for the life of his son. We have the elders and the attendants. Do other people in the palace know that David is making horrible, reckless, and self-destructive choices? Absolutely. There was a messenger who actually had to run across town. And the whole time from the palace to Bathsheba's front door, what's he saying? This is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But he never comes back to David and say, look, I know I'm a lowly servant and you're the king. This is wrong. You need to stop. I think that many of us, we just, we've grown up in environments where we say, like, I don't want to rock the boat. 
I want to be a nice Christian. I want to step, I want to step on anybody's toes. Uh, if they're making bad choices, that's between them, with, between them and God. And I'll, I'll pray that they'll figure it out. But I am not, I'm not sticking my head in that mess. And a dear friend by the name of Sean, a few years ago, he called me. And he goes, hey, Steve, a buddy of mine, um, his marriage is in trouble. His wife is reconnected with an old flame via social media. He lives on the other side of the country Nothing's happened yet, but there's this emotional affair that is threatening to tear apart two families. He goes, I'm going to be in California for business tomorrow. I've never met this other guy before in my life, but I think I'm going to show up at his church because he's a pastor and confront him. And I'm not going to lie to you. My first instinct was like, Sean, that's a bad idea. Like, you don't know if this guy is armed. You don't know like what his scenario is like, but he goes, oh, I just feel like, just pray for me anyway. I feel like this is what God's called me to do. And I was like, you have lost your brain. And so he showed up at a Wednesday night prayer meeting, waited for everybody else to leave, and then accosted a man that he had never met before. He said, are you so-and-so? He goes, yes. He goes, are you having an inappropriate emotional affair with so-and-so? And the guy's jaw dropped. And Sean said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to sever that relationship. I need you to delete all of your accounts by noon tomorrow, or I can have a conversation with your elders. How exactly do you want to play this? Didn't come, didn't come out of Sean trying to power up on somebody who was trying to say, God has better for you in your ministry. And he was trying to say, if you stay on this road, all sorts of kingdoms will crumble. Is that what you want? By the grace of God, he used Sean's courage (laughs) to turn two families back on the path that God had for them. So here's a question I want to ask you. Do you do you have a Nathan? And are you ready to be a Nathan? And then finally, I've got one more question, and that's, that's this. Do you know that if you're in the space between sin and restoration, you get a promise? Even in our moments of total failure, God speaks to us. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, God's taken away your sin. The good news is you're not going to die. And there are numerous passages in the Old Testament where David celebrates God's mercy. We look at Psalm 57, verses 7 through 12. He says this, God, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. What is the promise that God gives to everyone who has stumbled that is wrapped in this prayer? It's this, that God promises not to despise a broken heart. Contrite means somebody who shows remorse. God never rejects a remorseful heart. God never burns the brokenhearted. He welcomes them back with open arms. So if you've been on the run, it's not too late to turn around. If you've abandoned your post, if you've toyed with temptation, if you've followed the fantasy, if you've injured the innocent, it's not too late for you to turn around and find your way back home. Romans chapter 2 verse 12 says, don't you realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. Some of us, we repent because we're afraid of punishment. We repent because we're uh, drowning in shame. But God says, I want you to repent. And that word is a military term that literally means just just to turn around, to retreat, to backpedal. God says, when you walk away from a life that's tearing you down, the only reason I want you to do it is because you believe in my kindness. 
And I met somebody within the last couple months who's teaching me a lot about kindness. And um, a friend and co- a new friend and colleague of mine has been gracious enough to come up and share his story. So if you would, please join me in giving a warm central welcome to my friend, Larry Johnson. So a little, ba- little kind of part of my backstory, when Kelly and I came to Central to interview for the job, we had a chance to sit down with the whole spiritual formation team, and one of the couples that we met was Larry and Betty. Thank you so much, Justin. And um, we were just so stunned by their wisdom and their kindness that Kelly and I, we got in the car, we were driving back to Detroit, and we said, if the people of Central are anything like Larry and Betty, we have to come there. Because um, they're just people who are filled with grace and kindness and honor. So thank you so much for being a part of my story, and thanks for being with us here today. Thank you very much for this series. This has been very helpful to many of us. Thank you so much. It's been helpful to me as well. Thank you. So Larry, tell us a little bit, we kind of talked about how everybody has a past. So tell us a little bit about uh, your story and how God has used these kind of themes to bring you to the place that you are today. Um, this is like ancient history. Um, this goes back many, many years, okay? Um, I first came to this church when I wasn't even born. And um, this little church was on 17th and Pine. And if we had 200 people for a service, we really celebrated. And so I grew up in this church Gave my heart to Jesus when I was 10 years old. Was very active in the church and the youth group. And my parents were strong tenders here and participators. I, I think most people would say that I, I really had a strong Christian church home and heritage. Yeah. Um, it was pretty blessed. Yeah. I... Um, during those early years, I remember memorizing a thousand Bible verses with all their references. And people thought, wow, what a, what a young man that is. Little did they know that I didn't learn those verses because I loved the Bible. I learned those verses because I was in a contest with my sister and I wanted to learn more verses than she did. And I don't know if anybody kept score, but I know that she won by 50 verses, okay? I was, uh, I'm going to find out later when I review my life that it was performance-driven a lot. So, finish high school here at Holland High, go to one of our church schools called Houghton College in western New York, and I went there to prepare to be a minister. So I took the uh, ministerial course, and you were, and in my case, I majored in Bible and minored in sports. And many times I got those two mixed up. Um, During college, I married my high school sweetheart, and uh, she was a beautiful Christian lady, loved the Lord with all her heart. We got married in our junior year 
our first son was born and our senior year at college. And you would have thought things were going quite well. Then uh, we graduated from school and went to a little church in a town called Romulus, Michigan, which is where the Detroit airport's located, and became the pastor of that church. It was very small. We oftentimes were happy if 100 people were there on Sunday morning. While there, um, things went really wrong. Probably the worst chapter of my life occurred then, and I got wrapped up in all kinds of immoralities, sexual immoralities that are going to ruin my life. And the struggle was so intense. I remember so many times when I had sinned, but I had a respect for the pulpit, and I couldn't go into the pulpit with known sin. And so many, many times on Saturday night, you would find me in my study crying out to the Lord and confessing and praying and asking him for his forgiveness, and he did. And I would go on only to have it happen again. And I'm living this double life for a year or two. And one day I just can't do it any longer. And I confess to the district superintendent that things are not right in my life. And 15 minutes later, I'm sitting in front of a district board of administration and they remove me from the ministry they take all my credentials um, and I walk out of that room crushed go to the phone and make the hardest call of my life which was to my dad and tell him what has happened now what do you do Yes, I had gone to the Lord, and he wondered. I experienced the grace of God at a very deep level. Grace is the best subject in the Bible to this day. What do you do? The only thing I needed to do was come back to Holland and go back to that church that I knew loved me. And we came back to Holland, and came back into the fellowship of Central Wesleyan. I want to tell you two stories about people in this congregation. <laughs> now, remember when you leave in the situation that I did, you have no home, you have no job, you have no money. It seems like you have no future. And a man in this congregation, I won't tell you his name, but his Wife's name is Becky, and his first name is Ed. <laughs> he built a lot of homes in this area, and he came to me, and he said, uh, Larry, where are you going to live? I said, I have no idea. 
He said, I'll tell you what, I just finished a three-bedroom ranch. It's brand new on Vans Boulevard. Um, Ed, you don't understand. I don't have any money for this. He said, that's all right. Um, the home is completely finished except one bedroom needs to be painted. You paint it, we'll call that a down payment. Wow. But Ed, you don't understand. I can't make the first month's payment. He said, I'll help you with all that. And we moved into a brand new three-bedroom ranch. Somehow I found a job at Meyer Thrifty Acres and things started to come together. Our pastor then was Reverend Floyd Bailey. Dear, dear man of God. I don't know why, but he believed in me. And I would go to his office and we would meet many, many times and he would pray over me and help me and just be a friend. This recovery wasn't smooth. I'm a very slow learner. One time, I got so frustrated with the whole thing, I said, I'm done with it all. I'm out of the church. I'm out of anything Christian. I'm finished. I'm done. And I wrote a letter to Reverend Bailey that said all that. And it wasn't a very kind letter at all. And I slipped it under his door and went to work. That night, I was at the front of the Myers store, closing the store. Back then, Myers was only open till 10 o'clock, and it's closed on Sundays, if you can believe. So I'm standing at the door at 10 o'clock, getting ready to lock it, and here comes Reverend Bailey. And I remember saying to him, what in the world are you doing here? And I'll never forget this. He said, I just came to tell you that I love you and I believe in you just written him a nasty note and there he stood so he prayed and helped me immensely one day a man of this congregation called and said let's go for a ride and we went for a ride he said I just want to tell you I love you and I believe in you people are believing in me when I don't but I'm experiencing the congregational care of this church. I'm experiencing body life of the church. And I'm the recipient of so much of that love and grace. Next chapter winds up somehow. We're in Dallas, Texas. And I discover that I have another terrible problem. And it's a problem of anger. When I would get angry, I, didn't, I don't think I ever hollered at anybody probably. I, don't, I know I never threw a dish. I never hit anybody. But I was so angry on the inside. And the only way I knew to handle it was be quiet. And so I would go quiet in our family situation for a day at a time several days, a week, 
even longer sometimes. Until it got to the point where my wife said, that's it, we're done. And we went through a terrible, hard, difficult divorce. The divorce was 110% my fault. It was all actions that I had done and should have known much better. Go through the divorce, and as a result of that, I lose this job that I'm enjoying down there. Once again, my life is in many pieces. Wouldn't you know it, a former pastor that I had come to love here in Holland by the name of Travis was now a pastor in the Dallas area. And I wound up in his office praying and talking with him. Some beautiful things took place there. A year or two later, I met Betty. I'll let her tell you the story of how we met, but things began to come together, and we're experiencing the grace, the tremendous mercy and kindness and love of the Lord and of God's people. Through a job situation, we were invited back to Holland. And so here we come back to Holland. Betty says to me one weekend, where are we going to worship? I said, what do you mean? There's no question about that, is there? Of course we're going to Central Wesleyan. And we've, we came and Betty and I have been here ever since. We sang a hymn this morning, What Can Wash Away My Sins? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. This forgiveness, this kind of grace that Jesus extends is so powerful. And the next phrase in that hymn says, What Can Make Me Whole Again? It's the same person. It's still Jesus. It's still his grace. It's still his forgiveness. The hardest part for me was forgiving me. And there are times when I'm not sure I've done that. So when the church came to me one day and said, would you like to be a part-time pastor to the seniors? I could hardly contain my joy. It said to me, the church believes in you. The church is asking you to take leadership where once I had failed this body and this church so miserably. So it was a great time of healing for me. We took that position and short time later, we found ourselves in Russia and we had been there a few times on short-term mission trips, and now we were there for a year. And a team came from Quad Cities, Illinois, called the Wellsprings team. And uh, the field director asked Betty May if we would like to be in one of those sessions. And so we both said, yes, we would. And when I went to my session, I'm in a room with five people that I had never seen before in my life. And they introduced themselves. Then they put on some worship music. And I was about to experience something that I had never before experienced. 
in that worship experience, the Holy Spirit just came all over us in that room, and the Holy Spirit began to tell me, let me experience the unconditional love of God. I don't know how to explain that to you. I, it just washed over me. And for somebody who had been performance-oriented all of his life to experience this unconditional stuff was so refreshing and was so healing to me. That had a very powerful impact on my life. And today we have that ministry here in this church. And Wellsprings, along with Celebrate Recovery, work hand-in-hand helping people come to full freedom, full healing in Jesus Christ. To this congregation, I only say thank you, thank you, thank you. You have shown me the love of God, and I will forever be grateful. Thank you so much. team's going to come out and lead us in one final song. And as I do, I just want to pray that for many, for, for whoever of us who have not yet experienced that overwhelming love of God, that gentle heart of God, the unmitigated mercy and unrelenting grace of God, that, that that would wash over you just like it did for Larry in these moments. Let's pray together. Father God, I really do believe that every single time I take a step away from you, it's because I get confused about who you are. And Lord, I pray that right now that you would just slice through the fog of deceit and present a clear picture of who you are, your wisdom, your kindness, your grace, your truth, your beauty, your wonder, your awe, your strength. God, just let it sweep over every heart in this room. And Lord, I pray that where there is darkness, I just pray that, that Holy Spirit light bulbs would go on over hearts that you would illuminate the darkness that we have run from and say, if you can name this, if you can acknowledge this, if you can confess this, I can set you free. But we can only start that journey towards restoration when we have the courage to say, Lord, I have rejected you in this arena of my life. And I'm lost. And I need your help. Speak to me words of grace and lead me on the road back to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Romans says that the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that he didn't, he didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to acknowledge our failure. He didn't wait for us to get on our knees and say, God, I was wrong before he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That account lets us know that God has been reaching out to us from day one, even when we turned our backs on him, even when we kind of poked our finger in God's eye, even when we were on the run, he was steadily, patiently, constantly pursuing us. And if you leave this room with nothing other than an image of God seared in your brain who is chasing you with open arms. 
that it's his kindness that wants to restore you, then that's enough for me. Please know it is never, as long as you are drawing breath, it's not too late for you to find your way back home, for you to start that journey towards restoration. And if you don't know where to start, um, call the office, ask for Larry. Say, I want to I wanna sign up for one of those wellspring sessions. I'd like for a group of people to, to pray over me, maybe so we can get to the root of whatever it is that is causing my distrust about God. Or maybe you want to join us for Celebrate Recovery on Monday night. You say, I've got a hurt or a habit or a hang-up that keeps kind of derailing my life and my confidence to trust God in the way that I want to. You come. There's a judgment-free zone. There are a lot of gracious people who have been where you are who are finding hope and healing. And I just want to remind you that if you've never before been baptized, to declare to yourself and to God and to the world that you have been washed, that you have been redeemed, not that you're perfect, but that you are starting this journey towards full surrender in Jesus Christ as a result of faith in him. There's an informational meeting immediately following the service uh, that you can find more information about in the lobby. So that's happening on August 20th. We'd love to see you there. Let me just speak a word of blessing over you. My, my brothers and sisters of Central Wesleyan Church, may the grace of God wash over you. May the mercy of God flow freely towards you. May the cr- truth of God set you free moment after moment day after day until he calls us home. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us. God bless. We'll catch you next time.